Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Band Room Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. And here we are, coming to you, for some, the land of YouTube. We are now a video podcast, as well as an audio Mm -hmm. podcast, because some of you are listening to this and not seeing it. But you could be seeing it if you go to YouTube. Pretty crazy. Yeah. The future is very exciting. Yeah. Suddenly it matters, um, you know, what my hair looks like and how much I use my hands when I talk about things and, you know. But no, it's good. No more it's obscene good. gestures. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> no, just me making funny faces when you say things that make me laugh, but I don't want to say anything. So for people listening to the audio only, nothing will change at all. Um, but if you're mm-hmm. watching on video, hello, we can see, Well, I was going to say we can see. <laughs> you can see us. <laughs> can you imagine? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. We, we might do some live things. Who knows? That'd be um, fun. But yeah, it's it's kind of cool because we, you know, sometimes we might be talking about a book or something like that where there's actually visual and I always go, oh, the podcast is a stupid medium for this. <laughs> and now and now, and now you can see it. Yeah. <laughs> so the guests want to show us like something with their hands or something in the background yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be nice to. So there we go. Yeah. Um, anyway, so if 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 you are listening to this in audio form, thank you for listening to this in audio form. Um, but please <laughs> head over to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube, which will be found somewhere on the screen here because I'm going to make it come in. Whoa, oh, 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 <laughs> video, um, which is still useless to you that are listening. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, please go uh, subscribe to our, our YouTube page uh, at Bandroom Pod uh, or just search The Bandroom. And it, it will come up and you can easily subscribe and get all the latest videos and all that fun stuff um, coming out. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just this episode that we need to talk about. Um, but before we talk about other things, I want to talk about the review of the month. Can you put like Which confetti is, and like exciting yeah. things here on the video? Yeah, I don't know. I'll talk to the editor. Okay. Um <laughs> That's me. Uh, no, uh, we uh, we've we've tried to do a review of the month. Um, sadly, that hasn't come true because sometimes we don't get a review a month. So this is just a review. Um, but there's a reason I'm reading it. So this comes uh, from someone named. I'm not going to give full names because I don't want people, you know, addresses and credit card numbers. You know, I don't want people uh, getting found out or anything. Uh, we'll just say Paul. Um, and Paul says Bravo with five stars. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, I hopeless. I am hopelessly addicted to this fantastic podcast. Thank you. From stunning interviews to musical excerpts and recordings to insightful commentary. This podcast is binge-worthy. Wow. Congrats, Dylan and Kate. Keep up the amazing work, Paul, from the United States. That's what Aww. the review says. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. That's, That's so very kind. kind. Yeah. And the reason I also... Um, wanted to read that was because paul has also emailed me um because uh, he's a fan and supporter of the podcast which i'm very appreciative of um but he has uh, talked about how much he's like the earlier seasons where i used to play music a lot and then mm-hmm. i've s- since stopped doing that for um copyright reasons it was just too much work to get the necessary permissions um but that email had me thinking and had us thinking and um we're going to start a new series, which is um, already in the works, called Behind the Score, where we get to sit down with composers and and record kind of, a, you know, 15 to 30 minute 
little episodes um, talking about one of their pieces, kind of um, a la teaching um, band through performance um, format. If you're familiar with those books, talking about um, how the why the piece was created, maybe some historical context if that exists, technical considerations, stylistic considerations, and all that stuff. Um, and it's going to be cool because the, the we're actually going to have the composer there, which is super cool. And our first composer, I don't know who I could ask. I don't have that many composer friends, but you've got well, a few. Kate Nishimura. Oh my gosh, is going to be our first composer <laughs> um, to talk about a mystery piece that we haven't selected yet. Um, yeah. But it's a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I mean, I, I think from the composer perspective and conductor perspective, the two of us as co-hosts, I think it'll be really fun to kind of facilitate these deep dive type um, interviews with composers about some of their most well-known works that people in the community um, maybe will have played or heard or studied or it's on their wish list of pieces to do or whatever. I think it'll be really um, fun for us and for everyone listening and hopefully resourceful too, like hopefully helpful, um, for people in their programming endeavors and, um, you know, program notes can only go so far. And some mm -hmm. composers are really good about including supplementary info in the score or on their website or whatever, but there's nothing, nothing compares to actually talking to the person who made the music and getting their perspective on it. So um, personally, I'm really excited that we get to bring this kind of uh, content to our listeners. I think it'll be really fun. Yeah, it'll be great. So we're gonna try to do it once a month. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm what what what's gonna happen actually is uh, we're gonna switch back to a Monday release for our main episodes, and then anytime we do these behind the square episodes, they'll come out on Thursdays if you want to check those out. Um, and this will be also on YouTube, but also available through uh, all your podcast platforms too. Um, it's just the YouTube version will have score examples and a little bit mm -hmm. more visual for you to latch on to. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm someone who, when I was beginning my score study adventure as a young conductor, um, was not the most naturally uh, inept to, <laughs> to that. <laughs> um, so um, I know this will be a help to a great, many people to kind of just get you started and to start maybe thinking about pieces in a different way that you've already played or maybe introduce you to new pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and it's in by no means a replacement <laughs> for score study. Um, just uh, just a, a, an, an extra tool to put on your tool belt. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we Speaking should of composers, talk about today's yeah. guest. <laughs> Um, we had uh, just a grand old time uh, a couple days ago, actually, we were recording this intro after the fact, uh, speaking with um, someone I've known for quite some time since I was in Toronto, um, Mr. Kevin, I shouldn't say Mr., I should say Dr. Kevin Lau, composer, pianist extraordinaire. Um, we were really uh, kind of ecstatic to talk to him because he's someone who I don't think I would really, you know, we talked about the labels and things and the, during the episode, he's not so much in the band world, but uh, I wish he was more in the <laughs> band world. Um, right, he has some pieces brass. for a brass band that I've <laughs> played and conducted yeah. um, and um, as well as a couple of wind ensemble pieces, but it was just such, um, it was such a, a thoughtful conversation, I thought. Yeah. And we've, we talked about a lot of topics. So, Yeah. yeah. I, 
personally felt very inspired and um, validated almost too by this conversation. Mm. I, I had never actually met Kevin, I was going to say in person, but even just in real time. I think we've known of each other for quite some time, um, but I'm surprised mm-hmm. that we've never actually really had a conversation before. And um, I hope that this is the first of many because we really connected on a lot of topics and I was just delighted to have the chance to hear from him and it, you know, got some gears kind of turning in my own mind as well. Um, so he offered lots, lots of things to think about, lots of inspiration and, um, his music is just fantastic. So, um, it was a real treat to get to, to know him a little bit more and, uh, hopefully people who are listening, if you don't already know of his music, this is a wonderful excuse to go and check out um, the music of a composer who's maybe new to you absolutely um yeah super nice guy and i'm really glad that i could because I, I as i said during the episode i i like we have met and we've hung out a little bit um but i didn't really know anything <laughs> about yeah, him yeah. Uh, especially when i consider him one of my top five favorite composers i'm doing his big concerto for brass and percussion on my doctoral recital this Very November. Exciting. um yeah. so it's kind of my big centerpiece so i'm excited mm-hmm. about that but anyway it was a great conversation and it's going to be coming to you soon but mm-hmm. before we do that kate people could do us a favor couldn't they they could and we've <laughs> we've got a couple new things now going on oh, yeah. so there's more for me to talk about in my spiel about, you know, what people can do to support us. <laughs> um, but if you find listeners slash viewer uh, haven't already done so, please make sure that you've subscribed to the Bandroom podcast on whatever podcast platform you are listening on or on YouTube, on social media. Um, all of that support really goes a long way. Uh, if you're able to leave us a review, uh, a rating and or a review, maybe it'll be featured in our hopefully monthly um, review of the month. Uh, we really appreciate hearing from you, whether it's in a review or an email or a message on social media, a comment on an episode that you particularly liked. Um, all of that stuff really does help us out, helps us grow our audience, and um, we love hearing from you. So if you feel like doing that if you haven't already um get in touch with us leave us a rating leave us a review give us a like a follow all of the all the things um and thank you so much to everybody who has done that we really do appreciate the support and um speaking of support what's the other thing dylan that people could do um if they want to take that support to the next level well if you're looking for a way to further support the podcast, you could become a patron of the Bandroom Podcast through a little thing called Patreon, where you can uh, get access to bonus episodes, um, coffee mugs, stickers, and lots of other things um, if you become a patron of the podcast. Oh, wow. We can show We can model things. Okay. Ooh, Sorry, everybody. For the next little while, we're just going to be like unreasonably yeah. excited about you know all the video stuff so sorry Even for all you YouTube audio has been around people. for yeah. decades um <laughs> that's fine uh anyway you can do that if you, you uh want to go check out patreon.com slash bandroom pod that's patreon.com slash bandroom pod for more but without further ado here is our conversation with kevin Lau. Thank you.
Well, here we are for another exciting Bandroom podcast, and we are very excited today to be joined by someone that is, I, I was telling Kate <laughs> earlier this week, um, is probably in one of my top five composers. He's just one of my favorites and someone I've known for quite some time now, but haven't been able to, you know, dive deep and get to know him that well. It's award-winning composer, pianist extraordinaire, Kevin Lau. Welcome to the band room. Uh, thank you for having me. That's one of the most flattering intros that I've ever had. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I do what I can, Kevin. I do what I can. <laughs> but no, and, and I'm not just saying it because uh, we're on the podcast. It, tr- I truly do. And if, if your YouTube counts have gone up in the past week, it's because I've been binging Kevin Lau music. Ah, um, okay. okay. That explains a <laughs> lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there we go. <laughs> uh, but no, it's, I'm, just re- <laughs> I'm really excited to be here w- with you today. And uh, I guess we'll just start where we always start. Uh, where, why, and how did your musical journey begin? Yeah, so it, it's, an, it's been an, kind of an interesting ride. Like for me, I, I started with uh, playing piano uh, at the age mm. of five. And um, like a lot of uh, Asian immigrant families coming to Canada, I, that was just sort of like part and parcel of, of the deal of having a kid. It was just, you put them into piano lessons. And uh, it was one out of like uh, quite a few different activities, uh, but it it was maybe one of the few ones that actually stuck. Uh, And I didn't, you know, I never had any ambitions of of becoming a musician or or anything, but it was something that I did enjoy doing uh, as a kid. Mm -hmm. But the composing bug didn't really hit me until quite a bit later, uh, around the time I was in high school, I think, uh, at the age of 16 or so. And... Uh, at the time, I was really, really interested in creative writing. I, I always say to people that if I hadn't gone into composing, I would have, I would have pursued creative writing because those were were my two passions. Mm-hmm. And I was writing a lot. I was writing stories, and and um, the stories were getting longer and longer and longer. And um, I had written something. I, I won't call it a novel. Maybe it's novel length because uh, it's right. sort of doing a disservice to actual novels that are published by <laughs> professional authors. But it was a novel length thing. And I was very proud of it. It was a it was a fantasy story, and I had this I had this sort of weird dream that it would be turned into like there would be a screenplay, and it would get turned into a movie, and then I would get to write the soundtrack to it. And um, just all of a sudden, I, I started to create music and started to imagine what this potential score would be. Mm-hmm. And I discovered when I was doing that that it was such a it was such a joyride. Um, you know, when I when I began composing in this you know forty dollars software that I was using at the time called Noteworthy, uh, which I don't know if anybody <laughs> remembers now, but um, I was I was doing that and I could just spend like hours and hours uh, writing music uh, without any formal training whatsoever. So I had no idea how to orchestrate, but I was mm-hmm. just sort of drawing from my own experience of listening to music, and um, yeah, that was that was how it started. And then uh, I decided. Uh, between uh, an astronomy degree and a oh, music wow. composition degree, I, I decided I applied for both, um, and I decided to take the leap and apply to U of T for music composition. Oh wow! I, I had no idea astronomy. <laughs> have, have you found that uh, this topic has made it into some of your pieces? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I still have a love of all things um, sort of cosmos related. Mm-hmm. Every time there's a new set of pictures that comes out of some distant part of the universe, uh, I get right. really excited. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's 
I, I haven't really done like like a pure uh, cosmological themed piece yet. Um, right. But I did write a piece called "Between the Earth and Forever," which which uh, was an Iruhu concerto that is actually about space. So, oh, cool. wow, that's Very the closest cool. thing I think I've come to, <laughs> to threading those those two things together. Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to ask was, uh, it's you know we're in the we're in the band room, so I, I have to ask, and I've never asked you this actually, um, but. Did you have any experience in like high school music programs with within the band programs? You know, I so so I was in grade nine. I was enrolled in grade nine band, mm-hmm. and I actually quit music in high school because I had this idea in my head, probably you know somewhat influenced by my parents, uh, that I would just load up on the maths and sciences and I would just kind of leave oh, okay. the the arts behind. And so I started to do the maths and all three maths, all three sciences. And, and uh, my music teacher in high school kind of took me aside and said, you know, you, you're, you're, you have a talent for this and you, and you also mm-hmm. have an interest in it. So I totally respect your decision to not continue, but just think about it. Like, right. And, and she, my music teacher, uh, Fran Harvey, would actually come back uh, a, long, a long time after that and, and would yeah. play a significant role in my life uh, going forward but mm-hmm. at the time I was kind of like yeah whatever and um, but in late high school I started to as I was saying I started to think more about composing and mm-hmm. I thought okay maybe there's a chance of writing like a wind ensemble piece uh, right. since there was one in high school and and yeah. um, my music teacher seemed keen on basically asking me to write a piece for it. But I, I, so I got started, I wrote about a minute or so of a wind ensemble piece and then I never finished it. Uh, I I was never able to finish it. And I just kind of left it aside for, for a while. And then I went to U of T and my experiences just kind of took me in a totally different direction. And so even now to this day, I, I, even though I've written a little bit for wind ensemble and, and brass band, I, I feel like both of those mediums are not comfort zones for me they're, they're mm. I find them really really tricky I'm, I'm really curious mm-hmm. actually to hear uh, Kate's uh, perspective on the wind ensemble I, I find it to be a, a daunting medium but mm. um, I finally got a chance to actually write my first I think it was brass band that came first actually uh, my first brass band piece in 2009 and it was because my music teacher Mrs. Harvey uh, was also the conductor of the unit the was it Metropolitan United yeah. Silver Street Band? I think, yeah. and she, at, that was after you know eight years of studying at U of T already. And she she knew what I was doing, and she came to me and she said, "Hey, I'd like you to actually write a piece for our band." And so that was my first foray, and that that became the Great North Overture. That is a great piece. That I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna oh, just sing your praises for the whole thing. So get used to it. Um, and then also I'm gonna make sure to link all of these to our episode mm-hmm. notes so that uh, y'all can go listen to all of the wonderful loud music that that needs to be out in the world. Very cool. What a path. What a path. What a journey. Yeah. yeah. It's it's yeah. Actually, actually, the thing I was gonna um, that I just remember was one of the tunes in the Great North Overture actually came from that high school band piece, I think, that I was, <laughs> I, w- I was sketching and I never ended up finishing. So it was really, really nice to have that kind of full circle moment. I, I never actually put that together until this podcast. Hey. I, I'm not going to be serious. <laughs> there we but go. Was, but making that thread together in my mind, I was like, wow. Breaking it news. It took 10 years to write that piece. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to call Ray Tazard right now and tell him. <laughs> 
I was going to ask, actually, if you ever went back to that um, wind ensemble attempt, you know, from high school, if that material ever resurfaced or if you ever went back to it. And um, I love the idea that it came back in, in another form, that you were able to kind of incorporate those early ideas into something else. And it makes a lot of sense that, you know, writing a piece for that particular teacher of yours um, even though you only connected the dots now, it makes sense to me that that would have come up in writing for that person kind of symbolizing yeah. that part of your life like that. That's really interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, she was if she's listening to this, she was right all along. <laughs> um, she she, she kind of knew what my path was before before I knew what it was. But um, yeah. And the only difference being that it, it transformed from a wind ensemble medium into a, a brass band mm -hmm. medium. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it wasn't until actually 2014, I think, that I wrote my first actual wind ensemble piece. And, and I only really have one work for wind ensemble. Um, well, I have two. One of them is sort of like a percussion percussion concerto mm -hmm. with wind ensemble. Mm -hmm. So I guess I guess one and a half or two. I think that two. counts. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The percussion concerto was, was really hard as well. That was mm -hmm. that just boggled my mind. I just, you know. Um, yeah, because I feel like Kate, I don't know about you, but I, I am such a strings person. Mm -hmm. So, and because I think as composers, we all have a kind of default lens with which we start. Mm -hmm. And for me, the ensemble um, began with the strings, like because mm -hmm. uh, I'm kind of an orchestra-minded thinker. Mm -hmm. And so my first, uh, in, my first challenge with writing for both brass band and wind ensemble was okay, where, where did the strings go and what do I do with it? How do I replace that? And I had to, I had to really kind of alter my mindset and get out of the mindset of the strings being the default mm -hmm. uh, when I began writing for, for band. Mm -hmm. well, this and now a word from our sponsor. The Bandroom Podcast is proudly supported by Kaleidoscope Adventures. Kaleidoscope Adventures is a full-service student trip planner with more than 26 years of inspiring student travel. Dylan and I have had positive experiences on school music trips, so we both know how much these meaningful opportunities contribute to students' musical development and create lasting memories. Kaleidoscope Adventures specializes in organizing unique trips to over 40 student-friendly destinations. If you're planning a student trip, you can count on the Kaleidoscope Adventures professionals to collaborate with you to organize the perfect education or performance tour. When you're ready to plan your next adventure, visit kaleidoscopeadventures.com. That's kaleidoscopeadventures.com. Well, this is really interesting and maybe not the direction I thought we were going to go in at, at this point of the podcast, but I, <laughs> since we're here, um, I would love to kind of, maybe we should talk sometime about this because my default, yeah. you said default lens or default sort of um, approach to writing, for me, that actually is band. Um, yeah. And my, all of my music education has been in the band room pretty much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started taking piano lessons when I was young, um, but... I never took private lessons on uh, my major instrument of the clarinet or the bass clarinet until I got to university. And so pretty much everything that I learned was from uh, ensemble music making at school, playing yeah. in the band. Um, and so that's my default. So I can pretty much like word for word substitute 
orchestra for band or strings for winds in everything that you just said when I'm thinking about the daunting task of writing for strings, Mm -hmm. because that is not at all within my default um, mode of approaching things. So it's just very interesting. I think um, we're onto something. Composers ought to talk to each other a little bit more and uh, and, explore this stuff. And I think having that sort of foundational setting is, of course, it doesn't mean that you can't do other things and do other things really, really well. Of course. Um, but But I often think of like, you know, even thinking of older composers like Chopin, for example, was clearly a pianist at, like the, the piano mm-hmm. was sort of the medium with which his ideas were channeled through maybe that's not a great example because he did mostly write for piano but um or list for example so mm-hmm. even when he's writing for the orchestra you hear you kind of hear the piano uh, behind it yeah um and in beethoven it was often like the string quartet i think so you can hear the string quartet in his piano writing um, so right. I, I often think that we composers have these comfort zones, but then we kind of use them to branch out and, and, and depart from that. So, Yeah, I love that. Um, we could go on and on about this. I don't want to make it about me, um, but I'd love to follow up with you about this sometime and pick your brain about strings and, and you can ask me things about winds and it'll be a grand old time. <laughs> you can you can help me uh, write for saxophones <laughs> and yes. figure out how to, how to... I'll do my best. How to deal with that part of the wind ensemble. Anyway. I was going to say, that's a bit of a mystery even for even for us band folks. Yeah. Um, but I, I did want to just ask... <laughs> I know. Sorry, saxophones. Sorry, players. sorry. Um, we love you. Yeah, so we were going to ask just a little bit more about your path to becoming a composer. I think it's it's pretty clear kind of how that inspiration began for you. But um, I'm wondering about, you know, the support maybe that you received or any resistance that you experienced when um, exploring this career path or just this path of study, maybe even from your family or your peers or um, mm-hmm. teachers or anything like that. Like, what was the, the journey like for you um, you know, studying composition and all of that? Yeah, I think that's a really well put question. And um, I've I've thought about it a lot in recent years, because I think the question has come up, uh, especially since I'm now in a position of of mentoring a lot of younger people Mm -hmm. who are going through some similar things. And, you know, I I had, in many ways, the privilege of having parents who were were quite supportive of me uh, in, in all the ways that mattered. Um, I, you know, they were, I think they were a little bit nervous and they were a bit surprised uh, because they didn't, I, I just don't think that they thought that that's what would happen. <laughs> like it, you know, as a parent, <laughs> I imagine, I'm, I'm not, a, yeah. I'm not a parent, but I imagine that you just, you know, you just have some kind of preconceived notions of what your kid might end up doing. And sure. I'm sure that composition was very, very far off their radar, given that it was pretty far <laughs> off my radar as well uh, until very close to university. Um but they recognized that it was important for me to pursue something that I that I found meaning in. And um, I know that not everybody has had that experience and that can be uh, that can be quite, quite tricky. And so uh, and they were, you know, and this doesn't come up very often, but I, I do want to mention that, like I was financially supported. Uh, I lived at home for a great chunk of my time at university. Um, and so. I did miss out a little bit on the the dorm experience. Sometimes I kind of regret not having a, a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you know, I live with my parents uh, in a condo at Young and Finch, which is uh, a 30-minute commute from the St. Mm-hmm. George campus at U of T. And so 
in some ways it was really like, especially thinking back, I, I know at the time I was like, oh, such a drag. But thinking back, I was like, well, it's really nice to have a roof over your head and, and having parents still kind of support you through part of that journey. Yeah. And it did free up a lot of my internal resources to put uh, a lot of early energy into composing and into mm-hmm. trying to make a career out of something that is historically and still continues to be very challenging <laughs> and very mm-hmm. and very confusing. Uh, so I had a lot of that uh, in the initial years of my of my degree. So I, I did, you know, I was one of those people that just probably wanted to be a student forever. Like I could just continue being in academia for as long as, <laughs> you know, the funds ran out. Um, so I did all of my degrees at U of T. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but only at the end of my undergrad did I feel like I um, started to connect with uh, a composition mentor that I really had a strong connection with, which was uh, Christo Tatsis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he became my supervisor for my master's degree and, and most of my doctorate as well. So, um, but during those years of study, uh, I made it a point to try to get as much experience as I could um, and just basically wrote for everything possible Uh, and and any opportunity that came my way was an opportunity for me to try to grow and try to see if this was something that was a good fit Um, I should mention that you know a big motivation for doing music in the first place was that I was always very drawn to film music Um, I Mm -hmm. even when I was a kid I would go to the movies and I would be kind of uncannily sensitive to the, the scores that were playing in movies. And so I remember watching Jurassic Park at the age of 13, which gives you an idea of how old I am. And, <laughs> and just being like, I was like terrified, but also exhilarated. And the exhilaration mm-hmm. came entirely from the music because it's mm-hmm. kind of a scary movie. But the music just adds this layer of wonder and, and joy to it. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I... I had this idea of of trying to do film music, but um, it's weird how things happen with a career like composition. I'm sure you can speak to this as well, but like certain doors open that you don't expect and other doors are just really, really hard to get your foot in. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of go with the flow of things. And I never expected to be doing, to actually be making a career based entirely on on commissions for concert music, for orchestra music and chamber music. Um, but, but that's, that's kind of what ended up happening. Uh, even though I was knocking on the film music door for a very, very long time, Please, I'm, okay. I'm still very passionate about it and I still like to talk mm-hmm. about it a lot, but the, the bulk of my work is in orchestral and chamber music. So. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Very cool. Um, I guess, uh, well, I, I want to dive a little bit into, um, m- more of kind of how I got to know you. Um, I'm very lucky that I think I've, I've certainly gotten to play all of your brass band pieces and I've gotten oh, to cool. conduct two of them. Um, both of which I think you wrote for your high school teacher actually. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then this, uh, upcoming year I get to do your, uh, concerto for brass and percussion here at my doctoral recital, which I'm super excited about because we all have our big piece for our doctoral recitals and your piece mm. is my kind of center centerpiece. <laughs> so it's uh, oh, I'm really excited to be doing it. Um, but I've heard you heard or read you talk about kind of um, 
how the how the concerto came to be and how there's been kind of an evolution in, in your writing for brass. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak about how your writing for the medium has changed over the over the years. Yeah, I mean the brass family is is one of my favorite families, even within the orchestra. I, I often go on record saying I think the French horn is one of my favorite instruments, and, and me too. I just love the brass as like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I can yeah. tell actually. I can tell in your music that you're a French. Oh, horn. thanks. <laughs> Aficionado. Um, yeah. But yeah, I I, lo- I love I love the sound of the brass, and but to be honest, when I began writing for brass band. Um, it was it was an intimidating medium because I didn't understand so many of the instruments from that British tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've got the um, I'm just I'm just running through it in my mind right now, <laughs> like all of the, the cornets and the and the horns, which are not yeah. French horns, and things in E flat, it's like a... things in E flat, uh, <laughs> euphoniums and tubas, and yeah. and I was just like I I don't understand how these things fit and what roles they play, and and so there was quite a bit of research initially mm-hmm. where I just, I just tried to listen to as much brass band music as I could to understand at least some of the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think of the great North overture, which was my first brass band piece as kind of um, in, in some ways it, it was my stepping stone into that world. And I, I tried to keep the variables kind of simple so that I could get the orchestration right, right. Um, and do things that were, largely for me uh comfortable and and not um not too exploratory uh it's in many ways musically it's a comfort zone piece orchestrationally i was trying uh like i put all of my effort into the orchestration Mm -hmm. of it um and impressions which was my second brass band piece was uh, a little bit of a different like i took a little bit of a different path with that one because it was intended as a tribute for a particular individual Mm -hmm. Um, who had passed away. And so I was thinking about uh, those elements and those themes. And, and so that kind of guided the direction of the music. With the, when it came to writing the concerto, that was a direct commission from the Hannaford Street Silver Band, which had taken these earlier commissions uh, and, and played them a few times. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I felt like I had kind of a, a, a better grip, a better handle on the instruments and the way that the families interacted. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I tried to push my own uh, aesthetic a little bit and tried to do something maybe a little bit edgier, a little bit uh, riskier, mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit more challenging as well. Oh, so, yeah. you know, the trumpet, <laughs> like, as you know, as you've seen this, score, <laughs> um, like the, the, the solo trumpet alone has all of these really, really tricky moments, mm-hmm. uh, including lyrical moments that are actually very hard to sustain. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as very, very rapid virtuosic moments. And because it was a concerto for brass, my my spiritual model was kind of like the concerto for orchestra okay. type pieces yeah. in the orchestral repertoire where you get to highlight uh, different parts of the orchestra. And so I wanted to have uh, really juicy moments for each of the uh, each of the parts of the contingent. Right. So so that's kind of an overview. Uh, um, hopefully oh, that yeah. gives you a little bit of an idea. No, yeah. I, I think it's it's so interesting to hear you talk about it, and and I've I've told this to you to your face, but, but um, I think out of like many p- composers that I've played, like you write very ergonomically for the brass player, and it's just really kind of beautiful music to play. 
Um, cause so often we don't get to, <laughs> we get to play fanfares and do all that stuff, but you have these, these right, beautiful right. lyrical melodies and give us a chance to be musicians. <laughs> um, so, and, uh, and, uh, especially in your early work. So, and it, and now diving into your concerto, um, I, I find it more similar to maybe some of your orchestral writing where, uh, like you said, you're, mm. you're taking those risks and, and getting a little, a little more comfortable. And you also kind of have the horses when you're writing for the Hannaford Street Silver Band as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's. I mean, actually, the experience with that piece was so interesting because the Hannaford Band played it and they played it in that particular Hannaford mm-hmm. way of playing it, which is like super tight yeah. and super energetic, like high intensity, high energy. Um, but then I had, uh, as you know, I had the opportunity to arrange that piece for orchestral mm-hmm. brass. Um, so taking the brass band elements and then transforming it uh, back to, you know, trumpets in C and, and French horns and trombones and uh, and so forth. And the National Brass Project then recorded that uh, on, on their on their album. And that recording was really different. It was it just had yeah. a different sensibility. Uh, of course, the, the medium itself has a different sensibility. It's 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 sort of a bit more spacious mm-hmm. uh, and you get a feeling of the kind of like the cavernous quality of of those of these corrals and right. things like that. And um, yeah, I, I thought that was it was so exciting to hear that piece um, in two different mediums. Yeah, yeah, no, I because I remember listening to a clip of the brass band version on your website and then having the one that they, the Canadian national brass project recorded in it. You're like, you said, it's very mm-hmm. different, like a soprano cornet, the, just the tonal qualities of that instrument are, um, I'll just yeah. say unique. Um, <laughs> um, so it's yeah. interesting to hear yeah. the, the differences for sure. Well, it's like, it's like the first one was like a cheetah or a gazelle. <laughs> and then the second one is like a bear yeah, there or you something. Go. I, I, I intend them both to be, to be good. Yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of <laughs> drawing analogs right now, but um, they were just so different. Uh, in yeah, and I should say for those of because now we have we have many American listeners now. Um, the the Hannaford Street Silver Band is one of I don't know two or three professional brass bands in North America, and it's made up a lot of the Canadian Opera Company musicians and National Ballet and instructors at the University of Toronto and and freelancers. So it's like a very very good ensemble. Um, that has a kind of a, a very deep and rich history, um, especially for new music. It's one of the uh, ins- ensembles in, in Canada, especially bands. Um, they've commissioned the most uh, through Canada Arts Council, Ontario Arts Council, um, and, and they have a very rich history of of promoting and helping um, composers and making new music. So it's it's a really great thing. So we'll make sure to link all the all that stuff as well. I, I just want to interject yeah. and just say that if you saw me scribbling something down, it was. I, I put in quotes comfort zone piece. I um I don't want to get stuck on that for too long, but I love the way that you kind of labeled that um, because that's that's something that I think a lot of artists um, ought to reflect on is like, you know, what's the difference between making something that feels comfortable to me versus something that really pushes my own kind of artistic boundaries um, and. Mm-hmm. It's important to have both, I think, in your catalog, in your portfolio or whatever. Um, but it's just, it's interesting to kind of, um, to to think about it like that and label it as, yeah, I have works in my catalog that that's totally just, yeah, that was a comfort zone piece. Um, and then there's pieces that, that pushed me in a different way. And I think, um, yeah, I just wanted to point out that I, I find that a really cool way of thinking about it. Yeah, and I, I think it's because... You know, at the end of the day, we don't really know 
what the outcome is, is how it's actually going to reflect mm -hmm. on our, our process, I think. And so um, the, the description is more of like a process description because, yeah. uh, as, as you know, there are just certain things where like if you if you had an hour right now and you had to start writing, um, there are just certain things that you would go towards and gravitate yeah. towards and, um, and and certain bits of vocabulary or phrasing or, or whatever that are really um, that you respond to. And then there are other things which are harder for you to do. And um, and those go are going to be more exploratory. Uh, they might be fine for somebody else, but for you, it's 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 kind of a challenge. And so. Yeah, I think I think you said it really well. I think there's so many factors in the process, and I like to try to do all of those things at different times. Mm -hmm. um, and then what ends up happening sometimes is that my I, I've got what I think of as being a comfort zone piece that ends up doing something that I I didn't expect or or didn't mm -hmm. predict. Um, and then there there are pieces where I'm I'm trying to do something really really different, and I kind of come full circle, and you're like, yeah. oh yeah, that's just that's just me in a different you know. <laughs> Um, yeah. so it's, it's, it's all about, um, it's all about keeping the process fresh and exciting, I think. Totally. And now a word from our sponsor. You know, Kate, I often think back to my time at music camp and how important that time was not only in my growth as a musician, but as a person. I feel the same way. My first time performing original music in front of a big audience was at a music camp, and many of the people I met at camp are still friends and colleagues of mine today. 2022 marks the 60th anniversary of the Interprovincial Music Camp. That's right, 60 years of being Canada's most comprehensive music camp. IMC offers specialized camps for all levels of band, orchestra, choir, musical theater, rock, jazz, and songwriting. Students can learn from faculty that include members of major symphony orchestras, Juno and Grammy Award winners, touring musicians, and music educators. Also, new this year is IMC's Beginning Band Camp, open to campers ages 9 to 14. Located at the beautiful Camp Manitou on Manitowabing Lake, located in the heart of Muskoka Perry Sound region of Ontario, Canada, IMC facilities are second to none. With fully equipped cabins, outstanding meals with one of the chefs dedicated to preparing meals for those with specific dietary needs. IMC is unique in that it is centered around music, but also offers a true camp experience, including traditional activities such as swimming, sailing, water skiing, beach volleyball, and much more, as well as evening programs for the campers each night after the faculty concert. IMC provides young musicians with comprehensive and exceptional musical training, with faculty members who are some of Canada's finest performers and educators some of which include past bandroom guest, conductor, clinician, and educator Colin Clark, Dr. Colleen Richardson from Western University, Dominic Desotel, Principal Clarinet of the Canadian Opera Company, Sarah Jeffrey, Principal Oboe of the Toronto Symphony, and Vanessa Freilich, Associate Principal Trombone of the Toronto Symphony. They all bring a wealth of teaching experience and performing skills and are passionate about sharing their love of music with young musicians. Don't miss the opportunity to grow, be inspired, have fun, and make memories that will last a lifetime. Stay connected by following them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at imc.ca. That's imc.ca. 
To learn more about how you or someone you know can celebrate 60 years of the Interprovincial Music Camp, visit campimc.ca. That's campimc.ca. Speaking of fresh and exciting, um, uh, you are someone who... I segue. Yeah. I'm, I'm a master at segues. No, not really. Uh, as long as you put speaking of in front of it, it's going to be a segue. Yeah. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah. But one thing, you know, I feel like every week I go on Facebook and I see you collaborating with someone new. <laughs> um, and I want to ask you kind of what your approach to collaborating with musicians and ensembles are. You're someone who's been uh, a composer in residence with, you know, some of Canada's leading ensembles. The Toronto Symphony is an example of that. Um, some of your upcoming work that we're going to talk about later as well. Um, so could you talk about kind of your, your spirit of collaboration? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really love it. Uh, and I think, uh, especially when you start to work with uh, certain people uh, the second time, the third time, the fourth mm-hmm. time, uh, it can be really uh, artistically and uh, personally fulfilling to have a relationship between between two artists. Because um, I, I think music making is ultimately uh, a collaborative effort, even if there are aspects of it that are kind of solitary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just as one example, I had... Uh, just lovely opportunity to work with um, uh, Caitlin Brahms Jacobs, the uh, oboe uh, principal oboe at the Manitoba Chamber Orchestra, uh, a couple of months ago, on an oboe concerto, mm-hmm. and just you know having her come to Toronto and having us actually meet, and her bringing her oboe and actually playing through the solo part, and me going, yes, I love what you do there. I, I didn't even expect that you would do something that <laughs> yeah. cool and you did it. And, and in other places where I'm like, oh, can you, could you try it this way or can you try it this way? Um, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And um, you both, it, it's a lot of fun to, have, to work with people and where you're both aiming towards a kind of ideal realization of, of a certain musical idea. Um, and some of the collaborators I've worked with, I, I think of people like Rachel Mercer and... Scott St. John and Angela Park, um, like they've been playing my music for such a long time that, yeah, it's like, it's like they've kind of integrated my language right. into their learning process a little bit. And so that's really, really fun because you get to the rehearsal and, and you're like, well, you're already doing that better <laughs> than how I imagined. And, uh, so, but, but, but that's a great place to be because then you can, you can just jump in and, explore and do all sorts of really, really fun mm-hmm. things. Um, with an orchestra, I, I do find it a little bit more challenging because of uh, orchestral culture, I think. Um, there's just very, very limited rehearsal time. Well, it's a combination of limited rehearsal time and the fact that the orchestra is such a large scale organism with so many moving parts, so many people. Uh, and you're really only interfacing with uh, the conductor uh, for many, many parts of it. So I have... I remember that was a little bit of um, an adjustment uh, when I began working with uh, orchestras like the TSO, for example, where every second is precious. And um, so, but again, this is where if there's the luxury of having time and and maybe having the orchestra perform multiple things or perform the same piece multiple times, 
um, then you can start to get to know some of the individual people. And, and I've, I've certainly, I'm a little bit introverted by nature. And so it's, it can be kind of intimidating when you're standing in front of 80 <laughs> people to then like talk to individual people and, and, and say things that are, that are, you know, a little bit more in depth than just kind of an overview. Right. But I try my best to kind of talk to some of the individual players and, and, and just see how things are shaping up. Uh, sometimes when things are really stressful, that doesn't always happen. Right. But um, I try as much as possible to have a dialogue. Very cool. Very cool to hear about. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it a lot on the podcast, uh, you know, the conductor-composer relationship, or I guess the musician in, in general composer relationship and how those, those mm -hmm. mutually benefit each other. Because I think sometimes we view it as kind of like you're making a product, I will perform said product. But to hear hear you speak about how each influences each other is really is really fascinating, and uh, and definitely a philosophy I agree with. So, well, I feel like there's sort of there's sort of an ideal that everybody is on board mm -hmm. with, like musicians, conductor, composer. We we all know the best the best and most satisfying musical moment is when we're we're working together. And we're trying things and we're, we're uh, you know, doing our best to kind of realize a particular vision that's articulated in the piece. And I think the things working against that are things like time yeah. and money, as always. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, they're hard, they're hard things to solve, but I feel like we all know where it needs mm -hmm. to be. Uh, and so uh, sometimes... Yeah, sometimes that can be just a little bit frustrating with uh, some of the bigger right. programs where you just feel like, oh, there's just not yeah. enough time to, mm -hmm. to have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to pivot here a little bit um, to a topic that is very important um, to me anyway, and I think it will will resonate with, with many of our listeners as well. Um, so you were uh, featured in a CBC article about Asian Canadian artists um, and how identity kind of comes into play in your artistic work. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if you would be willing to speak about um, perhaps the pressure or expectation for historically marginalized artists to kind of center their identity in their artistic work and, and make this, you know, at the forefront of their creative output. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to quote you because this is something that really resonated uh -oh. with me, but you, you mentioned just the freedom to draw upon one's identity is as important as the freedom not to. Mm. And that's something that, that just really hit home for me um, as a, as a person who, you know, is hired to do things for international women's day yes. um, or, you know, uh, these kinds of, uh, well-intentioned but uh, sort of tokenism-type events. Um, and I, I would love to just kind of open up a dialogue about this and hear what you have to offer on this topic. Yeah, well, well thank you for bringing that up. I mean, it's, um, this is a very, very complex topic, which we can probably have a very, very mm -hmm. long discussion about. And, um, Absolutely. I, I, I think so... So the CBC article uh, was um, came out during Asian Heritage Month, and uh, it was meant to be kind of a survey of um, just a few Asian Canadian musicians who were doing interesting things. And uh, actually, I, I was very—I thought the article was well written, and I had a great time at the interview. I thought 
you know, you know, I want to make clear that all of those things were, were things that I were, was happy to be part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of it was, was great as well. Um, but when I got the call from CBC, I just remember having this, uh, uh, like a very mixed reaction. Um, on the one hand, I was grateful to be asked to, to be interviewed, um, as we all are when we get called by a major media uh, um, outlet. Um, to to say your piece and to be on a visible platform, um, but a lot of the initial questions that were posed in the the, the email that I got um, just gave me mixed feelings because all of the questions were about uh, identity and, and identity is a complex thing. You know, like when we think of identity, it's it's our whole person, it's our personality, it's our belief system, it's our values, it's how we're shaped by our culture and um, by our families and, and friends and so forth, where we are, when we are, all of those things mm-hmm. are very, very complicated. And um, mm-hmm. it seems that there's one aspect of identity that has been kind of really, really pushed to the forefront, which is that of, of group identity. Um, and so all of the questions uh, were, were really about um, my, my relationship with, with that. Um, how, where, what are your influences in Asian music? Um, or did you face, uh, um, were these influences sort of a problem growing up? And I, I think I think the sort of mixed reaction that I, I got from that was, well, it, it just seemed as though um, it was very, very difficult in this framework to actually talk about what was important for me. Uh, and mm-hmm. not to say that that wasn't important, um, but you know, there's kind of like a leading question aspect to it where it's sort of focusing your your thoughts in a particular direction. And um, and I have noticed, like, in recent years, I've had to speak more and more about my relationship with that, almost at the exclusion of, of talking about my actual music, which is really what I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about. And so I think the yeah. idea of actually interviewing... Um, artists of a certain group uh, is wonderful. Uh, But it's sort of the way that, you know, it's sort of the way that it's done, I think. Um, If we allow artists to talk about what is actually important to them, which may include their relationship with their group identity and their heritage, um, that is totally fine. Um, But I also think that we can be interested in all sorts of other things as well. And there is the sense I get sometimes where I think it's group identity has become sort of the dominant or, or in some cases the only lens in which we see uh, artists work. Um, and again, I want to make very, very clear that if that is something that is important to you, that is actually, it's beautiful, it's valid. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not even saying that it's not important to me, mm. but again, it's kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, that's something that I want to come to on my own terms. In, in some ways. Um, so that's a, a long-winded and slightly rambly <laughs> um, response to that. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate everything that you said just there. And, and um, I connect with a lot of that on a personal level. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I almost hesitated to even ask you about this because I agree so much with you that I was like, should we ask him about this or should we just keep asking him things about his music? Because that's really, you know, the core of what we want to get to. But I personally, I just think it's so important for people in this community, in this industry, you know, to 
just kind of get that perspective on this highly nuanced, complex, layered thing that is, you know, infusing one's identity in the work that they share and how they present themselves. Like it's, it's complicated, right? So I, I appreciate you speaking to that. Yeah, it is. And I think, um, like you said something really, uh, um, you, you phrased something really well in the introduction to this topic, which is the idea of, of well-intentioned. I think it is very well-intentioned uh, for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it is, it is complicated and complex enough of, a, of territory where um, it, it's hard to kind of apply a one-size-fits-all uh, mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, and I've often, yeah. you know, this is something, this is a discussion I've had with my wife, for example, but I've often said that actually growing up as, uh, as an Asian immigrant in Canada, in retrospect, I'm sort of, I, I, I think back to my experiences um, in, in elementary school, in high school, and um, for the most part, um, I have felt that my visual identity was, uh, was very much accepted in the community that I, I grew up in um, and was to the point where I didn't feel that it was something that uh, really compromised my opportunities. And I know that that is not the experience that everybody has. And I'm, I'm absolutely um, not saying that that is a universal experience. Uh, but for me, it was an, it's important for me to acknowledge that while also acknowledging the experiences of of others. And I think, you know, you could say that there is um, there's a certain privilege of having uh, to to not have your identity brought up in that way. But then the idea is that if that is a privilege, then should we not extend it mm-hmm. to to all? Right? The, the opportunity to not actually yeah. have to think about it all the time. It's, it's kind of a weird, <laughs> strange thing, but it's, it's like, yeah, I, I think that we should all have the opportunity to, um, to see one another um, for our commonalities. And, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, when you think about, like, yeah. do you ask a, a, a white male American composer how their identity uh, informs their creative work. Like, no, you just ask them what their inspiration was for the work or whatever. And so the assumption that, that asking somebody who mm-hmm. um, presents, whether visually or with their name or s- some other way, you know, in, in some sort of this group identity, the assumption right. that that's the most important thing about them or about their work, I think is a bit unfair. Um, so it's, it's just great to open open the discussion about these kinds of things, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very well said. And now a word from our sponsor. It seems like almost every episode we talk about the importance of community. Often maybe our guests bring it up to why they became interested in band. Community is a big part of why many of us do what we do. Absolutely. And that's why I love our new partnership with the Canadian Band Association to share an opportunity for you to be part of a national community of band directors, musicians, and educators. And becoming a member is easy. By joining your provincial band chapter, you automatically become a member of the Canadian Band Association. No matter if you're in British Columbia, Newfoundland and Labrador, or anywhere in between, there is a band association for you. Yes, even my homeland of Prince Edward Island. They started a new one, which is very exciting. Membership benefits include access 
to the Canadian Winds Journal, Monthly E-News, National Insurance Program, National Youth Band Audition Discounts for Students, Access to National Awards and Musician Certificates. Not to mention all the great events your own provincial chapters will hold. Conducting workshops, community band events, reading sessions, workshops, and more. Support band and music education in Canada through supporting the work being done by your local chapter. To learn more about how you can become a member of the Canadian Band Association, visit canadianband.org chapters to find info on how to connect with your provincial chapter. That's canadianband.org chapters to learn how you can be part of the Canadian Band community. Yeah, no one's really asking me much about my Canadian Irishness. <laughs> <laughs> but if that were important to you, and if you had a particular, yeah. you know, tie to that, that then exactly. by all by all means, you know, that's something that's yeah. very yeah. that's very well. And it's great to have the space to talk about it. But you know, it, when mm-hmm. it when it becomes sort of like um, the default way of talking about uh, minorities yeah. and marginalized communities, then we start to get into um, a kind of a reductiveness. I think. Um, which which I, I'm cautious about. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I, and I think certainly from from our perspective as people who program music, it's uh, it's 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 a, I mean it goes back to what Kate was saying about the, kind of that intention behind it, um, and there's so many ways that it can be um, abused in certain ways, but um, certainly for me at least like thinking about what I have full control over here, at least with my recital, like the reason I programmed your music and Kate's music and Joanne Harris's and Anna Klein is because I think it's fantastic music that speaks and will move people. Um, and, uh, and I think that's really important, um, a thing to kind of keep in mind, but also, you know, promoting those that you love <laughs> also is, is wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that's the, that's in many ways a very pure, uh, kind of um, motivation to respond to the music mm-hmm. that you love and and often when you're doing so I believe and maybe this is I don't know if this is overly optimistic but it it, it seems in my experience at least that when you actually respond and you to, to the work that you truly love um, mm-hmm. the product of that or the output or the outcome um, ends up looking really good <laughs> you know because yeah. because you're you're making an effort to actually um you know search for things that resonate with you um and mm-hmm. i think that's i think that's in general and i know that not everybody feels uh, the the way i do about that um mm-hmm. but um for me when i get the sense that i'm being at, brought into something or asked to be in, involved in something um, primarily because there's an optical advantage to it. Um, that's when I think I, I start to, my spidey sense starts to tingle a little bit. But I know there are people like, you know, that, that don't have that problem and that, that feel like, right. you know, as long as you're hired, it's criteria just like any other criteria. It's like, you know, an age criteria or something like that. So I'm, yeah, it's, everybody feels differently about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, speaking of, hey, you like that? There's another one. Excellent. Um, <laughs> this one actually is, a, this question does go smoothly into yeah. the, into the next, but, um, 
I, I was a little worried that you wouldn't be able to, to, to chat with us today because I just saw you were in Winnipeg and it was for this project, I believe, that you were there. And I was wondering if, if you could tell us about um, your new ballet, uh, Kimiko's Pearl, and kind of the experience of working on a large-scale, multidisciplinary project. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Kimiko's Pearl is uh, uh, a ballet that is centered around the Japanese-Canadian experience of the internment mm. during World War II. And the, the founders of the project of Bravo Niagara, which is commissioning me to do this, uh, were themselves descendants of, of um, some of the people that went through that horrible time period. And um, we had kind of a prior relationship because they live in Niagara on the lake. And, mm -hmm. and I've worked a lot with the Niagara Symphony. And so we've known each other for quite a few years. And I know that they wanted to work with me on, on this project. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very... You know, what what I love about this ballet is that we have, it's a truly, truly collaborative experience. Uh, there's there's no, there's actually no director. There's no one person that's kind of leading it. Um, it's, it's, I'm working with a choreographer named Yosuke Mino, um, who is uh, from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. And uh, we are together sort of developing music and choreography in tandem with a writer, Howard Reich. Um, who used to work for the, who used to write for the Chicago Tribune. And, uh, and he's sort of responsible for putting together the scenes and, and trying to tell this story of um, uh, Christine Maury and Alexis Gildener, who are the mother and daughter team behind this project. And yeah, it's been, it's been an utterly fascinating and, and just absolutely amazing journey uh, to, to, to tell this story. Um, it's also, I feel like there's kind of a lot of responsibility there as well, because, you know, it is a very personal story, but it's, it's a personal story that affected the lives of many, many people. And I remember, you know, a large scale ballet like this takes a long time to put together. And, and we're also trying something sonically and acoustically that I've never done before, which is we've got four musicians. So violin, cello, harp, and, a flute player doubling on Japanese flute and Western flute. Uh, and then a fifth kind of sonic character, which is the sound design. And mm -hmm. I've never really worked with instrumentalists and a sound designer all together. And we're trying mm -hmm. to build the score from the ground up in a very organic, a very kind of um, motivated way, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's it's been fascinating to write each scene and then see Yosuke kind of develop this choreo choreography around the scene and then to workshop it in front of Christine and Alexis. And I was just in Winnipeg last week doing um, uh, scene four from act one, which is um, a very difficult scene to, to do. It's, it's basically, mm -hmm. it's basically the internment. It's when we kind of arrive at the internment mm -hmm. and I wrote a piece for it and Yosuke choreographed it and we, we had lunch and we were, we were very happy with our progress and I think we were getting maybe a little bit um, just confident about our ability to tell this story really well. And we, we showed it to um, the founders and we showed it to the, the whole team. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, that was a really, really interesting conversation because they basically said, you know, we love what you're doing. It's very beautiful. It's very powerful, but um, there were, there were, there were issues uh, mm -hmm. and it didn't feel like we were giving it the time and the weight and, um, and so, yeah, just having that back and forth and understanding the weight of 
the collaboration and the weight of these themes um, was really, really interesting. But it's, yeah, I'm, I'm loving every moment of it. Very cool. Yeah, that's, that's very fascinating. Um, I am personally very excited um, to see where this goes and hopefully to, to see the ballet in its full form um, whenever that is a possibility. Um, I myself am a descendant of Japanese Canadians who mm -hmm. experienced the internment and um, right. that has had long lasting ramifications on generations within my family and our entire community. Um, yes. So I, I can relate to the struggle um, with just how on earth to depict this kind of story through art in any capacity. Uh, I imagine that it's, it's quite difficult at times, but also quite rewarding um, knowing that you're telling such a personal story and, and bringing that to new audiences. I think that's just such valuable work that you're doing. So um, thank you. Thank you for, for doing it uh, and for, for sharing with oh, us, you. you know, what, you know, what the, the experience has been like for you so far. It's, it's just really interesting. Yeah, it's been it's been a really eye opening journey, and um, and just having basically a number of Zoom calls uh, once every three weeks where we sit and we talk about the scenes, and, and then just out of that kind of tangenting into the the history, um, the history of their family, the the history of this community, um, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that you have stories as well that and and. And the kind of trauma, I think, that uh, it, it leaves. Mm -hmm. And the way different generations have dealt with it as well. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, sometimes with works like this, the, there, there are moments to reflect and to, and to really, really think about it. And then there are moments where, in terms of the creative process, it can be, it can be quite overwhelming, actually. Because, mm -hmm. like, every single note, how do I, how do I reflect that? And it's, um, it's a little bit of a dance between those things where um, sometimes you just kind of have to trust your instincts uh, and, and hope that you've integrated enough of this responsibility that what comes out is going gonna, is gonna to work. Uh, but then sometimes there is this kind of collaborative aspect of, of shaping it and trying to make it um, more truthful, more... Mm -hmm powerful more emotional yeah yeah when is it scheduled to be completed i know that's probably that makes your blood boil or something but you know when it when is that project <laughs> scheduled to uh, yeah no just just for our listeners sake like if if people want to learn more about it or or check it out so i at the moment i believe we are looking at 2024 okay uh spring of 2024 for the final for the final ballet um, however there is actually um, a filmed version of one of the initial scenes uh, because we we started this project right at the the heart of the pandemic and we knew that you know we knew that we wanted to get something out there into the world and, and to just kind of have a test drive for the viability of the project mm -hmm. and so we filmed we we I wrote a piece of music for one of the initial scenes. Mm -hmm. um, Yosuke choreographed it with some of the dancers from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. And then um, uh, a filmmaker actually came in and, and, and filmed it. Cool. And we put that film up on Kamiko's Pearl website. So you can watch the, the scene uh, and uh, experience this sort of 
initial part of that story. Amazing. Thank you. We'll make sure to uh, put a link to that and all of the other wonderful things that we've talked about over the course of this conversation. Uh, we'll put the links in our episode notes so that people can go and, and check it all out. Um, I'm, I'm sad because we've reached the final question of our uh, main episode here. And it's just been so wonderful to talk to you so far that I don't want to stop. Um, but before we get to our last question, I'm just going to remind our listeners that the three of us are going to go off into bonus episode land where Kevin will share a fun story that is a mystery to Life all changing. of us at this point. Yes. <laughs> um, but we are going to go as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's going to be great. Uh, and we're going to go and do that. So if you would like to uh, to check that out and listen to all of our wonderful back catalog of fun bonus episodes, uh, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash bandroompod. Okay. So, uh, Kevin, you've given us so much to reflect on, so much to think about um, already in this conversation. But we're just wondering, what advice do you have for composers or other musicians in general? Well, uh, I will start by saying that uh, the older that I get, the harder it is to give good advice. <laughs> You'd think it would be sort of the other way yeah. around. Um, uh, I, I feel like I was more confident in my advice giving 10 years ago. <laughs> um, and I think the, it's one of those things where it's like the more you know, um, the, the harder it is to know, to, to be responsible, I think, mm -hmm. with the, the kind of advice you can give. Yeah. Especially in a field that I, I think is so unpredictable and so... Um, so tricky. Mm -hmm. um, so I will, that's my, that's kind of like my disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I know, I just know that music as a path forward is, is tricky and unpredictable and full of thorns and, um, and, and full of things that you may not expect. And, um, but for composers, I, I would sort of, distill it to, to two related pieces of advice. And I think the first would be to, to sort of optimize your, your habits and your work life as much as possible. Um, because, because this is an unpredictable arena and you don't necessarily know what's going to come your way, good or bad. Um, I, I think there is some value to, taking stock of the things that are within your direct control mm -hmm. um, and optimizing it to the best of your ability. Um, and that can be as simple as things like, are you actually getting enough sleep? <laughs> uh, or are you actually giving yourself enough time to, to do the work that needs to be done? Um, in some of the courses that I teach, I, I teach a few courses at, um, at Humber College, and um, and I've also been teaching at the Glen Gould School for a little bit, but I often talk about the flow state uh, as being kind of an optimal, almost childlike state uh, of, of creativity where you're just kind of like, you know, going back to what I was saying when I was 16 and I was just writing music um, in an un unimpeded way where you feel like time is just not even a thing. It's just kind of passing by. And it's very, very difficult to capture that as, to recapture that feeling as adults, um, but it's not impossible. And, and despite the kind of 
wildly challenging landscape of what it means to be a musician. Uh, there are things that you can do personally to actually cultivate yeah. cultivate mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, that's that's kind of one of the first things I would say is to just see if you can optimize uh, that aspect uh, of your life. And and I think on a related note uh, to that, uh, it's just pre- protecting creativity and protecting the impulse to to have fun and to play and to and to yeah and to enjoy the process because really that's what we're it's 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 the thing that you're going to be spending most of your time doing and so those ordinary moments where you're uh where you're trying to come up with something or where you're trying to do the, like those ordinary moments are the things that that you should make as pristine as possible mm-hmm. uh and creativity is a hard thing to protect because we have there's so much social pressure i think to be more than to to extend ourselves mm-hmm. uh, uh whether it's through um networking or social media or promote or like various kinds of promotion and that stuff like if if you're good at it and you love doing it it's it's great to sink sink mm-hmm. into that um but i i've just noticed uh particularly within the last few years that um it's very very that stuff which is designed to kind of bring you into a place of stability can end up being the thing that actually eats away at your at your own um at your own love of the craft so to speak um and so just reminding yourself that um that creativity needs space and it needs uh it needs breathing room mm-hmm. uh can be can be very very useful and and so i think those are you know, these these are both topics that I could go into for <laughs> hours and hours because I'm passionate about that kind mm-hmm. of thing, um, and and helping people, you know, find their mojo, mm-hmm. so to speak, and and find out what motivates them because I think motivation is um, is a tricky thing to chase uh, when we're talking about creativity, and it's also different for each person. So there's no there's no single solution that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Some people are motivated in completely like in ways that are so different from my own. Um, But the end goal is that you want to find, you want to remind yourself of the things that make you excited. Uh, And when you are excited, which you sometimes can't control um, to, to just think for a moment is like, how did I, how did I get Mm -hmm. here? And are there ways of kind of recreating those Mm -hmm. conditions? Uh, And you have a lot more power than you think. So I, I think that when people start to do that and they realize, oh, you know what, even though the world is crazy and <laughs> I have no idea what's going on and I have no idea what gig I'm going to get next, um, I have I have like way more control over these things than I mm-hmm. think. Um, and suddenly it becomes this empowering thing where you're like, oh, you know what, like I can actually accept the fact that I'm not going to get that because um, now I have a way forward over here. Mm-hmm. You know? So, Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, again a little bit of a, a rambling. <laughs> no, I love it. Beautiful rambling. Yeah. yeah, I could have used that advice. Um, I don't know, maybe a year ago or something. I, I came to the realization that creativity mm. needs space um, relatively recently, and that yeah. artists need time to do nothing. Artists need time to, um, you yes. know, access that Absolutely. that curiosity and excitement and flow state without the pressure of delivering something immediately. You know, and um, 
I'm so mm-hmm. glad that you said that in, in such a well-worded, I know you said it was rambly, but it wasn't that rambly. Um, because I, I think there's, there's so many people that, um, you know, not, not just composers, like that, that can be applied to practicing. It can be applied to repertoire selection. It can be, you know, yeah. that's transferable advice, I think, to so many scenarios. So thank you so much for sharing that. Oh yeah, no problem. And, and, um, yeah, like just jumping off that because I just had a final thought with that is it's just reminding of yourself of what makes you inspired, mm-hmm. I think, um, because it's not always I think sometimes as advice givers too, we, we get really, really careful because we are aware of um, the, the many dark spots of the industry and, and we want to protect uh, people from those um, from potential exploitation. And that's really, really important. I think you should not go into anything uh, naive. Um, but at the same time, I remember the times when I've been most fulfilled and most happy were not necessarily moments where all of that stuff was in sync, but there were moments where there was something kind of greater on the horizon that was that just gave me this feeling of mm-hmm. inspiration that I can't even yeah. articulate. Um, and what you said about doing nothing like it's it's honestly like I take that literally um, because we are we are so kind of stimulated uh, and sometimes that stimulation can actually sap the the creative juices and sometimes I think that creativity like requires a, a little bit of boredom and a little bit of like I don't know what I'm doing because that's when your brain gets to be like oh thank <laughs> <Yeah>. goodness <laughs> there's like nothing for me to chew on and so now I'm gonna like you know daydream exactly. a little bit or imagine yeah. or something um, it's so so important and we have so little of it yeah yeah wow well you, you have given us just with your advice lots to chew on and 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 like Kate said like it's it's it, it goes past just being a composer and certainly I could have heard it last week <laughs> and, and benefited <laughs> from it greatly yeah uh, but and and, it, and it's it's always um, I'm really lucky to have Kate in my life to kind of have a someone like a, a creative right there and kind of and we we know mm. we talk about each other's problems but I'm often reminded that often as conductors or performers uh, it's something that maybe we don't consider all of the time what we're asking of you um, be it within the time frame or right. be it within what what we want we want a piece that sounds like this <laughs> um, <laughs> and just thinking about how how we're talking to you and and allowing time to do nothing and be creative if we're if we're hounding you constantly for, for things so um, it's always it's always an interesting thing to think about um, this this week's advice will not fit on a t-shirt but it is equally um, important <laughs> and beneficial that's kind of my thing Kevin is I, I like <laughs> advice uh, for my top secret um, series of t-shirts that I'm going to start uh, selling <laughs> Oh, excellent. I can't wait to see this. We'll see how it goes. Um, But anyway. You'll have to go on to the back, too. (laughs) Indecipherable. Yeah. (laughs) Size six font. Um, Anyway, um, I I do want to thank you so much for taking the time um, for this amazingly thoughtful conversation that we've been able to have with you today. Um, like I said at the beginning, it, it's been it's been great to know you over, when I was in Toronto, um, but to think that I, I really didn't know you um, and to, to have this conversation <laughs> today and to learn what made you tick and do this and do that and and write and uh, it, it's been great. And um, I'm I'm always thinking of of, of composers. Well, um, 
and, and labels and things. And you're really one that's hard to label, which I think is a great thing. You know, you, you just write fantastic music for who's in front of you. It might be an opera. It might be an orchestra. It might be a brass band. Who knows? <laughs> so I'm incredibly grateful for you to be here, for your voice, for your time, everything. So thank you for being in the band room, Kevin. Well, that means uh, a lot to me. And thank you both so much. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the band room podcast. Give us a rating and a review and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider becoming part of our Patreon community where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet, sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, where your comment might be featured on a future episode of BRP. Our theme music is Skyline, composed by EKR Hamill and performed by Dr. Gillian McKay and the University of Toronto Wind Ensemble. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room.